Well, you might notice in your bulletin that there's a text of Scripture that is listed as the Scripture we're going to be looking at this morning, and I need to tell you that last night I did something I almost never do, and uh, sort of was preparing and going over that text about the rich young man or the rich young ruler, and just uh, suddenly as I was preparing for that, felt like I really wanted to go a different direction, so I called an audible. Maybe it was because I was watching, you know, football earlier in the evening, but um, ended up deciding that uh, what I wanted to do instead as uh, we open up God's Word together this morning is take a look at one of the uh, encounters with Jesus Christ that occur after some of the encounters we looked at in our uh, advanced conference earlier this week. So uh, I'll give you some more details on that in a, in a moment. But I just wanted to uh, express my deep gratitude to uh, you as a church and to your pastor, Brian, just for the opportunity that I have to be here before you. Uh, it's really like being among family uh, when you have the privilege of preaching in another local church that clearly has an appetite for God's Word. Um, That's not the case everywhere. And for me to be among you today has already just nourished my own soul, and I know that you are hungering for the one thing that makes a difference in your life and in your heart, and that is uh, God's Word. And so it is a delight for me to be able to bring that Word to you this morning, knowing that that is what you desire. And it's wonderful to be in a place where there's been a long history of uh, faithful, excellent exposition of Scripture. And I really believe that what that does over the course of many years is it shapes and fashions a body of believers into what God intends for them to be. And that relationship then between the, the flock and between that shepherd who's serving under the under-shepherd, uh, as an under-shepherd under the great shepherd, our Savior, uh, it's such a sweet relationship. And so when somebody else comes into that, they can just sense it. And uh, that's what I have here with you. So, so thank you for uh, welcoming me here. Um, this particular trip uh, is special for me because uh, my oldest daughter, Olivia, uh, has now reached the age where she gets to travel with me uh, quite often, and so it's really a, a joy to have her with me, and she brought her friend Anna Van Otterloo with her, and uh, Anna and her extended family actually have connections up here in the Montana area, and so it's really uh, a joy for us to be up here with you, and uh, I was going to say it's a joy for them. I don't know. They have to endure me every week, but um, it's great for them to at least travel up here and to experience Montana for a while, and uh, when you've spent your whole life in Southern California, Montana is a really different place, and, uh, and even if you just like me move there later on, uh, you lose touch with the fact that there are places in the country where there are things like seasons and um, rain and... Uh, wild animals. And so it was really quite exciting for me. I drove in a place where we're staying and our gracious hosts had put us up and there were, there were uh, deer outside in the yard. And to you, that's nothing. To me, I thought, how quaint they, they raised deer. Um, <laughs> I, I, I thought to be somebody clarified for me. No, they actually come here on their own. And so last night uh, when I was coming back, uh, this is a true story, I was coming back and I was just sort of slowing down to turn in to the driveway and this large dark animal came out of the uh, little ditch that was there and crossed the street and um, given my, my vast experience with wild animals, uh, I was able to discern that this was in fact a black bear. So I thought, what an exciting event to 
see a black bear. And then, dazed in my headlights, are two little bears coming up out of the ditch. And uh, I was just blown away. I hear, I feel like I'm in in sort of a safari, like this is wild (laughs) nature happening in front of me. And so I did what any normal person from Southern California did, is I quickly reasoned that given the fact that these little bears are sort of mesmerized by the headlights, and given the fact that it sheds a great amount of light on them, I will be able to take a photograph and share that with my children. At which point I proceed to get out of the vehicle and almost step foot on the ground, almost, because I'm here. And it's when this reality crashes in about that whole saying about getting between a mother bear and her cubs, that's real. (laughs) That's not just a saying. And so, don't worry, I stop myself and instead watch them cross the road in amazement. So, uh, it's fun to be here. I'm glad I've survived. And it is now time for us to really get serious, open up God's Word, and ask Him to bless our hearts from it. So let's do that together. Heavenly Father, it is an awesome privilege to be able to open up Your Word this morning. We don't take it lightly that uh, every time we do that, we are having an encounter with the one true living God through the Word that He left for us. It is holy, it is inspired, it is inerrant, it is complete, It gives us everything we need for life and godliness, and so I would ask that you would be pleased to serve us today through the preaching of your word, that we might be able to hear something here that once again draws us deeper into our love and commitment and uh, devotion to you, that we wouldn't be just hearers of the word, but that we would be doers of the word as well, that we would encounter marvelous things and come away from this place changed. For we pray these things in your name. Amen. Please take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to John chapter 4, specifically verses 46 through 54 will be the passage of Scripture to which I'll draw your attention this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can open up the Pew Bible in front of you. This is going to be on page 492. I've entitled this message, Jesus and the Nobleman Whose Power Ran Out. It is an absolutely fascinating interaction between Jesus and a real person. This is not a parable. Uh, This is an actual historical account between a man and somebody whom he was essentially evangelizing. And this is one of many accounts throughout the Gospel of John. We looked at two others during our advanced conference this week, and we're just amazed to see the way that the very living Son of God interacts with sinful creation and humanity in order to bring them the marvelous truth and hope of salvation through Him. Please follow along as I read John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. So he, Jesus, came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, "'Unless you see signs and wonders,' you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. 
And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The Apostle John, when he is writing the Gospel of John here in the late 90s AD, said towards the end of his Gospel that there was a reason for its composing. He says in John 20, verses 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What a wonderful reason for writing a book. What a wonderful goal that every single account and every single historical record, every single sermon and every single component of this gospel had one particular aim, and that was to help people come to the point of genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that's really important because we all have something spiritual in common. It doesn't matter what religion you're from or if you come from no religious background at all. It doesn't matter your age, your gender, your race, your ethnicity, your social standing. In fact, it's so universal that it's built into being human. It distinguishes us from all creatures, and it even makes us unique from angels. It's the most important reality that exists, and it is something with eternal consequences if it doesn't get resolved. This is what it is. The common spiritual condition for every person is unbelief. We were all, at one point, unbelievers, and some still are. And the text of Scripture that's going to occupy our attention this morning has this one dominant theme, and that theme is faith. Now, healing is going to be a part of it, but really what you need to see is that at the root of this important exchange between Jesus and this nobleman is the understanding that John is using the story to demonstrate the spectrum of belief, the spectrum of faith that happens when anybody encounters the truth of the gospel. Now it's directly applicable to everyone and it's massively helpful as we interact with a world of unbelievers. And it's going to show us, I think, how unbelievers think. And so for this sermon, just by way of outline, I want you to see basic belief in two phases. Just a basic understanding of belief or faith, really in two phases. And the first phase, we're just going to call the root of faith. This is the beginning, the root of faith. And I think you see that in the first few verses of this account. Well, what we're going to do is just look through it verse by verse, and I'll make some comments as we go. Beginning in verse 46, so he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Now, this really sets the stage for us. 
early on in the ministry of Jesus. If you have a Bible in front of you, you can look at the beginning of the Gospel of John. You see that John really starts at the very beginning. In fact, his gospel is one that goes back to the very beginning and says, at the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He goes back to the very start to explain what it is for Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to become flesh. He then goes on to describe the fact that John the Baptist identified him as the Messiah. He talks about some of his early disciples. And then he gives the account of the wedding in Cana, where he makes his first miracle, where his mother really calls him onto the scene a little bit earlier than he was expecting in order to demonstrate his power. And then in chapter 3, we have this beautiful account of Jesus and Nicodemus, this righteous, religious, powerful, wealthy man who meets Jesus by night and essentially says to him, look, Jesus, we've been watching you. We saw this whole event a little bit earlier where you cleansed the temple. We know that you have zeal and passion. We know that you've got power and that you're a gifted speaker. In fact, we believe that your power comes from God. And Nicodemus goes to him by night basically to broker a deal, to broker an alliance. He says, there's no sense for us to be fighting one another. Why don't you come back to our side? Why don't you come back into the fold? Why don't you stop being an independent? Let us endorse you. Together we can topple Rome and bring in the kingdom. Jesus says, nope, you got it all wrong. You got to start all over again. You got to be born from above. You've got to abandon all of your religion and start over again by following me. Right after that, we have another stunning account where Jesus sits down at a well, exhausted in the midday after six hours of walking, and a woman, a woman that everybody was talking about in that town, an immoral woman, sits down there at the well, and Jesus says to her, give me something to drink. And in the course of that conversation, reveals to her that she has been trying to satisfy her thirst with everything in the world that was only making it worse, and he was there to give her living water. The, the first person that was uh, directly told that Jesus is the Messiah is this unworthy, Samaritan, immoral woman. But in that, the glorious truth of Jesus Christ revealing himself to the least of these Well, the next account, the one that just continues on in terms of Jesus interacting with people, is this one before us. It involves this man who is here called an official. Now, he is somebody that is very important in the eyes of the Jewish people there. He's not an official necessarily in the religious sense. This guy was a political official, Uh, literally somebody who worked for the king. He was a high-ranking officer in the king's court. And Jesus now... He's back in town. He's got a reputation. He's known as a healer. He's known as a miracle worker. Many people believe in his power to do miraculous works. And so when he gets there, this powerful man seeks him out. This powerful official goes to find Jesus. His reputation is spreading. This man knows about him. If you back up just a little bit, maybe even just one verse earlier, you can see the way that Jesus is described in chapter 4, verse 45. It says, so when he came to Galilee, when he got back into town, the Galileans welcomed him. Why? Having seen all that he's done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. His reputation was spreading because he had done some pretty powerful and miraculous 
things. But here's the problem. People had belief in him. They acknowledged his power, but that wasn't the same as saving faith. Let me give you one more text just to jot down for reference sake. At the end of chapter 2, we see this brought to us in vivid detail. At the end of chapter 2, John says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, when he was doing all the things that these people saw when they were in Jerusalem and have now come back to Galilee, when he was there, when they were there, this is what happened. He says, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Now pause for a moment. That word entrust, it's the same word for belief. So the people believed in him when they saw his miracles, but Jesus did not believe in their belief. It wasn't genuine saving faith. Oh, they were enamored by his miracles. They acknowledged his power. They did what Nicodemus did and said, whatever you're doing must be from God, but they didn't have saving faith. And it says here that he knows that because he knows all people. Verse 25, And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That's why he's able to come directly at Nicodemus with the truth. He can come directly to the woman at the well with the truth. And he can come directly to this nobleman with the truth. Please notice this. Nobody ever rejected Jesus as a miracle worker. They only rejected him as a savior. And so this official, this royal official, goes before Jesus with a genuine need. It says here that his son was ill. The word just means sick to the point of death. And even though this man himself was very powerful, he goes to one who's even more powerful. And look what he says, verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. It says here that the man is going up. Going up geographically, likely from the lower coastlines where he's from and and up into this region of Galilee where Jesus is. It's a long walk, historians tell us, maybe 20 miles, much of it uphill. This man had to start either very late in the evening, the day before, or early, early in the morning before the sun got up. And he goes and he approaches Jesus. And I find this fascinating because the man himself was a man of great power and resources, As a nobleman, as somebody who worked for the king, this man was obviously highly regarded. He was somebody who had a lot of authority. He was somebody who was used to getting things done. He was the kind of person who had a lot of servants. He was the kind of person where when things didn't go right in his life, he had the contacts, he had the connections, he had the strategy necessary and the authority and the means to accomplish it where whatever was bothering him didn't bother him for long. He was the kind of man who ran the show. He was the kind of man who had the power. And so when he goes to Jesus, it is evidence that his power had run out. There was nothing left for him to do. All he knows is that his little boy is dying. And all of his authority and all of his wealth and all of his connections and all of his power can't do a thing to stop it. And so in abject desperation, he himself not just sending a servant. He himself marches out to find Jesus. And when this man finds him, he says to him, 
I want you to come down and heal my son. And I say it like that because I don't want you to mistake what's going on here. It's not like he came with a deep sense of humility begging Jesus to come and heal his son. At the beginning of this encounter, the word asked is used, and that word asked is a word that implies that this man understood that he was literally on a special footing. That's how you can describe that. That this man said, I am going to this itinerant healer, and I am instructing him to come down and heal my son. This wasn't somebody who came with a lot of humility right away. He had a certain level of trust, but he basically felt like Jesus would owe it to him. This man was on the higher plane in terms of the culture, in terms of the socioeconomic scale, and so he instructs Jesus. There's no evidence of faith. And if Jesus had simply gone down and healed the boy, that would have been the end of it. It's kind of how I I think he thought it would go. I'm going to go find Jesus. He's going to know who I am. I'm going to say, come down and heal my son. Jesus is going to do that, and everything will be fine. This is how we're going to solve the problem. The man shows a level of confidence in Jesus' ability, but not saving faith. Not yet. Look at verse 48. So Jesus says something astonishing. Jesus says something that nobody in the crowd was expecting. Jesus does another one of these things where the apostles likely stand around with their mouths gaping open in utter disbelief at what this man they're following has the audacity to say. This is going to be another one of those occasions where the disciples are astonished at their Lord. And he says to the man, I don't believe with any sense of rudeness to it, but he says very simply and very plainly, Verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, it's highly likely that there was more to the dialogue than this. The gospel writers didn't include every single line of dialogue, but this is certainly the line of dialogue that's stuck in John's mind. Jesus gets to the point where he is very blunt, though not unkind, and he basically appeals to the man's reason. He says, I know why you're here. I know the kind of man that you are. I know the authority you have. I know that you're used to getting your way. But I need to, be some, I need to say something to you that's uh, a bit of a shock. Nothing's really going to happen here unless you see signs and wonders. So what do we do? Do we take this and we pause and we say, well, I guess this person came to Jesus for all the wrong reasons? Well, the answer is yes. I think a lot of people come to Jesus for all the wrong reasons. I think a lot of people reach a point in their life where they're so desperate that they have nothing else to cling on to, so they reach out for Jesus. Is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely not. Many of you can look back on your own conversion experience and say, I reached that point where I had tried everything else and all I had left was to reach out to Christ. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Where people go wrong sometimes, though, is what are they looking for? What do they want Jesus to do? What are they willing to give up when they truly understand the meaning of the gospel? That's where this man is. That's the tension I want you to feel. This man has a certain amount of understanding of what's going on here. He knows Jesus has the power, but Jesus says, no, it's not that easy. We've got to make sure you understand what it means to truly repent and embrace me as Lord and Savior. And so the official responds, verse 49, This is his response. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't say, how dare you? He's not like the rich young ruler who we were going to learn about this morning, who, when confronted with a similar statement by Jesus, turned around and walked away. 
This man doesn't do any of that. This man digs in. This man says, okay. This man responds to Jesus in a respectful way and in a way that is looking for compassion. He says this, Sir, come down before my child dies. This, beloved, is what I'm going to call the root of faith. It's the very start. It's the very beginning of something. He does not walk away. There's some level of trust. He uses the word sir, and you should underline that. It's the word Lord. He acknowledges that he must now come under this man, this itinerant teacher, this man of no reputation. He must come under him. This nobleman who has all the power and the authority and the connection to the king must come under this other man who in reality is the son of God and the king. And he says to him, Lord, sir, and now with a sense of a grieving heart of a father whose child is dying, he says, please come down before my child, my little one, my dependent baby dies. If there's anything that can draw need out of a person, it's the sickness of a child, isn't it? Those of you who have children know that nobody could put any obstacle in your way if you are trying to get to someone who could heal your child. And this man, though I don't believe a believer at this point, had all of those instinctive reactions inside of him, those God-given familial ties, the love of a father for a child, a little child, a dependent child, an innocent child, and he's going to say no matter what, I'm going to bring healing to this boy if there is anything at all that I can do. And it's with that sort of broken heart that he comes to Jesus. And please notice, Jesus doesn't break him. Jesus doesn't respond in some cold, callous way, exposing his unbelief. Jesus, even though he repeatedly responds in ways people aren't expecting, he responded in a way that Mary wasn't expecting when she asked him to make the water into wine. He responded in a way the Syrophoenician woman wasn't expecting when he said that the food should not be given to dogs. He responds in ways that his disciples weren't expecting, but it doesn't mean he's unkind. There's a reason, always. And he always gets down to the root cause. He always gets down to the issue. Faith is not easy. There are many obstacles along the way, but genuine faith will always persevere. And so this is the first part, the root of faith. Let's look at the second part. We'll call it the fruit of faith. The fruit of faith. This is in verses 50 through 54. Jesus continues, and he said to him, what glorious words these must have been to the man. He says, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. You know, this is really a concession to the man's faith. It's a concession to the man's need for proof. This is grace. It's what the man needed. And Jesus says to him, no, I'm not going to go with you, but don't worry. I am going to heal. Now, we need to pause for a moment and just think about this. Number one, no one in those days knew how to heal anybody. Doctors in those days did the best they can with some sort of remedy, but nobody even understood how diseases worked. I was reading a book on the plane on the way over, and I was astonished just to hear the detailed account of how little we were able to do for people who were sick, even into the 1900s. There's a gentleman in my church who served in World War II. He's 92 years old, and I loved spending time with him. 
and he was a pilot in the Royal Air Force, and he reminds me at times that so many of the men in his unit were lost because in those days, something like antibiotics were new. And so when you hear of a healing in the New Testament, this was a shock. This is what spread all around the region because nobody knew how to heal. Let's take it a step further. Jesus says, not only am I going to heal that boy, but I'm going to heal him from here. I'm going to do a satellite healing. I'm going to do a long distance healing. Not only is that boy going to be well, but I'm not even going to go. I'm just going to tell you it's going to happen. And you've got to go back home to see if I'm telling the truth or not. That's amazing. This man has to exercise a tremendous amount of faith before he's even willing to turn around and walk back home. He had to believe enough to walk away. He was the opposite of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler walked away in unbelief. This man is going to walk away as a sign of belief. Just imagine for a moment. Put yourself in this guy's shoes. His son, whom he loves, is dying. He has given up everything in order to leave that boy behind, perhaps never to see him again. In an effort to trek the some 20 miles uphill to go and find Jesus through the middle of the night, he finds Jesus and he begs him to come and heal the boy, even though he has the authority as a ruler to probably demand it. Jesus, in response, tells him he's not going to believe unless he sees something, and then says, I will heal the boy, but I'm not going to go down with you. I'm going to do it from right here. And at that moment, that man has to decide if he is going to turn around and walk back the 20 miles, knowing that if he gets back and he was wrong, it's over. The child is either dead Or Jesus turns out to be a fraud and there's no time to get back and deal with it. Imagine what it's like when he has to make the decision to break the gaze of looking into the face of Jesus Christ, turn around and walk back down that path. This is the most important crisis the man has ever faced. And yet in doing so, he shows that that little kernel of faith that he has is beginning to blossom into something genuine and something effective Listen, you need to understand that this man has that kernel of faith and he's manifesting it here. And so he does. Turns around. He walks away. And the disciples see him walk away. And Jesus sees him walk away. And the crowd sees him walk away. And there's no indication he's got an entourage with him. He's just a dad walking back home having put all his trust in a miracle worker who said that when you get back, you'll see that I'm telling you the truth and that the boy is healed. What's that walk like? How does that feel? Well, as he's walking back, verse 51 says this. As he was going down, His servants met him, his slaves met him, and told him that his son was recovering. Wow, awesome. As Jesus was speaking, the servants began making their way back to the master. Why? Because they're on death watch. They're watching this boy, figuring that it's not going to be long before he dies. And as they're on death watch, all of a sudden something changes. All of a sudden the boy's fever breaks. All of a sudden he is healed and they're excited. And there is no longer any need for them to watch this boy. In fact, it gets even better. There's no longer any need for that official to go looking for a healer. There's no need. He can come home. 
It's fine. The fever broke. The boy is healed. And so these servants, they get up quickly from where they are and they go to find their master. They go to find him to say, don't worry about Jesus. Don't worry about that healer. Trust us. Your boy is fine. You can come back home now. That's what they're feeling as they encounter him on the road. So you can understand why this is confusing for them. Because when they find him and they share with him what happened, instead of celebrating they realize that they've got to make a case for why this is true. That word met him and told him. That word told him, it means laying down an argument. They're building a case. The text says that they're having to say over and over again that this is what happened. Why? Because the man is interrogating them. Instead of just celebrating the fact that the boy is healed, instead of just throwing up his arms in joy and saying, great, let's go home, we'll celebrate... He's asking them for details. Look at verse 52. So he asked them to uh, the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. But they're probably also thinking, who cares? Who cares? He's well. Since when do you start caring about when specifically the boy was healed? The boy's healed. It doesn't matter. So built into all of the sadness and all of the fear and all the anxiety and all of the joy is all of this confusion on both sides because the nobleman wants to know when and where and the servants want to know why he wants to know this. And so they're standing there in the dark, on the path, having this discussion about exactly when the whole thing happened. And here's why. Because it was absolutely crucial for him to know when the boy was healed, because that event is what he is basing his faith and his hope and his trust on. If Jesus lied to me, it changes everything. But if what he said is true, if I can take him at his word, if I can believe him, then that changes everything. And so they tell him it was yesterday, which means that he spent the night either walking or in some state of wandering here. We now know what was killing the boy. It was a fever, and that fever left him. He now knows exactly when it happened, and he knows that it was the time when Jesus was speaking. And if you go back to verse 51, I want you to notice this. At the end of that verse, it says he was recovering. That's not a great translation. It literally means he lives. The fever immediately left him, and he is instantaneously healed. Now this man knows the truth. Now this man knows that Jesus can be trusted. And so the father knew, look at verse 40, 53, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself, what? Believed. He and his whole household. He says that's the time when he realized that what Jesus said was true. And he now knew that this man was truly from God. He wasn't just an itinerant magician. He wasn't just some miracle worker who had found some way to heal. He was actually who he said he was, the son of God. His faith becomes real. It begins to bear fruit. It begins to mature. It says here that he knew. That's a word that means to know through personal experience. It became real to him. And just to be clear, that real faith was rooted in his love and his trust of Jesus Christ. It was more than just what Jesus did for him. It was rooted in Jesus Christ himself. Now that said, everybody knows that It's what Jesus has done for you that really helps you to see the work he's done in your life, isn't it? 
Those of you who have been walking with the Lord for any period of time know what it's like to see yourself mature and grow in your knowledge of the truth, what it's like to bear fruit for his glory, what it's like to be sanctified. Those of you who had the opportunity to be saved after many years of not walking with the Lord know what it's like to have that radical transformation. You're a new person. And so you look back on those events in your life and you say, thank you. Lord, for saving me, for rescuing me, for changing me. This man looks back on the event with his son, and he says, thank you, Lord, for making it so evident that everything you said about yourself is true. He has a deep and abiding love for him. And so verse 54 wraps it up. He says, this is now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The first sign was that water into wine, and the second sign is that event that proved to be such a shock to the people who saw it. No doubt word spread very quickly. In fact, word spread probably more quickly about the event with this official's son than with the event with the water and the wine. In fact, this is what begins to spread all around Galilee. Why is it important? It's important because as Jesus begins his Galilean ministry, he is going to have one event after another where people's faith is tested where he says to them, it's not simply about belief, like we saw in John 2. It's not just some person who has an affinity for him or an interest in him or they admire him. No, it's going to require you to overcome these obstacles that are put in front of you to prove that your faith is real. And this is what he's going to do time and time again throughout the rest of the gospel. Now, it's really important for us to remember that because the gospel is something that we preach to ourselves every day. I mean, in terms of just application of this, theologically speaking, faith is something that grows. Faith is something that begins kind of small, enough to save for sure, but that faith grows as you get older, a deeper and deeper love for Christ and for what he's done for you. We preach that every day to ourselves and to those who have yet to believe. In fact, there are probably some here who have yet to make that decision. Maybe you've come to Jesus with a need. And maybe you think that that's the wrong way to approach him. Well, I'd remind you that that's exactly where this man was. There's nothing wrong with approaching God because you've come to the end of yourself, because you've tried everything else, because you've got disappointments that are mounting. There's nothing wrong with coming to Christ and saying, I've reached the end of my rope. I've got nobody else. Will you rescue me? However, if what you realize is that by being rescued, it means giving up the last things you're holding on to, then you're going to find yourself where these men were where this nobleman was, where the rich young ruler was, where the woman at the well was, where Nicodemus was. The beauty of the gospel is that it's very simple. The fact is we have a holy God who created men who rebelled against him. And as a result of that sin came separation, for which he sent his son to make a way for us to be reunited with our heavenly father and stand before him clothed in the righteousness of Christ, who came as a man, never sinned, died on the cross to pay for our penalty, and made it possible for us to be reconciled to our Father. That's the glorious good news. But along the way, what it costs everybody is everything else they're holding on to. And that's where these people were. That's where you've been if you've repented. And that's where some of you might be today. Find yourself there, and you can find a Savior who's ready to save Now, one of the things that I also want to remind you is that the Lord had every right to close the door on the opportunity of salvation for this man. The Lord had every right to say, well, if you don't believe me, then you can just leave. But he didn't. 
He was compassionate with him. He was patient with him. He walked him through it. He showed all of the kindness and the grace you would expect from a loving Savior. He protected this man from being crushed, from his son dying, from him spiraling downward in unbelief and grief. But there's something else that comes out of this. A question. What about the time when God doesn't heal? What about the times when God doesn't do the miracle? What do you do then? I know many of you are familiar with that famous account of the circumstances behind the writing of the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, Horatio Spafford, wealthy man from Chicago who lost almost everything in the fire in 1871. Later on, he decides that one of the ways to help the family be lifted out of their grief and despondency was to go over to Europe and maybe start over there. And in 1873, at the last minute, he stays back and he sends his wife and his four daughters across. And halfway across, the ship is struck and it sinks. And his four precious daughters sink to the bottom of the ocean. And only his wife is saved. And she arrives in Europe. And when she can, she telegraphs him a two-word text. And it just says, saved alone. Now, most of us know that part of the story. And as he's traveling over to be with her in her grief, he comes over the place where his daughters were lost. And he writes the words to that famous hymn. What you might not know is that after he was reunited with his wife and the period of grieving ended, God was gracious to them and gave them another child. In fact, gave him a a little son, and he named his son Horatio Spafford Jr. And it's a beautiful account of God's grace in restoring some of what was lost. And when that little boy was three years old, and three years old is a great age, isn't it? If you have any three-year-olds, you know, it's, I've got four children, I've watched them all go through this phase, and it's great because, you know, up until three, they're a little bit hard to manage. You know, they go through these sort of terrorizing years just leading up to the age of three. And then for about a decade, they're normal. Then they get to be 13 and it all goes crazy again. But, you know, for, for about that decade, it's just a really sweet time. And I love three-year-olds. And so when I read this account, I immediately thought of that age, tender age, precious little age. And when Horatio Spafford Jr. was three years old, he contracted scarlet fever. And Horatio watched his little boy continue to decline. And eventually that little three-year-old died. You think, what does a guy like him think when he reads a text like this? Does he say, Lord, how come you wouldn't heal my little boy? How come after taking my four daughters, now you've got to take my son as well. Did it break him? Did it cause him to abandon his faith in God? Did it cause him to spiral down into an endless pit of unbelief? No. He held on through it. He said, Lord, even though I don't understand any of this, I trust you. And from what we know of history, he remained faithful until the very end. He asked for his son back and God said no, but it didn't crush his faith. In fact, through it, I believe the Lord deepened his faith. And I imagine that even at the end of his life, looking back over these multiple tragedies, he could still say it as well with my soul. By way of implication, brothers and sisters, let me remind you that even within this local body, there's work that we can be doing for each other. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. You're going to find people in your church who are 
faint-hearted, idle, weak. What are we to do? We're to be patient with them. The way that looks is sort of two simple statements in my mind. Number one is you show kindness to the needy. I think that needy people are given to us as a way to show the love of Christ to somebody. And there are those who come to us in need because of situations in their family, sometimes even consequences of bad decisions. But as we as a local body here receive them and care for them and show them the sort of encouragement and help and patience that Christ showed, we are in many ways being the body of Christ for them as we should. And secondly, show mercy to the sorrowful. Sorrow at some point is going to grip you in your life. At some point it might become so overwhelming it almost feels like it's going to suffocate you. And one of the places where you go to find help in a time of need like that is the body of Christ. Isaiah 42, 3 says that God says a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Those sorrowful people who are really at the end of their rope, those are the ones who are that smoldering wick, that that reed that's been bent is now bruised and is so easy to break. They're the ones that need the sort of help and the care and the compassion that can only come from brothers and sisters in Christ who are willing to help them bear that heavy load. Let me encourage you to be those people. And as you are, you're going to model the love and the compassion and the grace of your own Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we lay all these things before his feet. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the wonderful joy that it is to be among those who have been chosen by you, to feel the love of your redeeming grace and our lives. Thank you for giving us the faith to believe the gospel, to move beyond simply an intellectual assent to it, to move beyond just looking at your marvelous works and accepting that you come from God, but to be going all the way with it, repenting of our sin, discarding every other hope of salvation, and throwing ourselves entirely on your grace. May you bear fruit in our lives for your glory and honor and draw those who have yet to make that decision to you in saving faith, even today. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.